A sparkling glass of Prosecco is placed in front of me as I sit in one of the tall bar chairs in the crystal dining room. There are soft conversations happening in the mildly empty room, the piano playing a familiar ballad by its phantom pianist. I take a sip and let the sweet beverage reminisce me of celebrations from the past. While I certainly have much to celebrate, my heart is heavy from the whirlwind that has been my life for the last six months. It all started with a cough, a small, persistent cough that I assumed was allergies, then perhaps a cold. I felt relatively fine, maybe a bit tired, but there was nothing I found outwardly concerning. It did not feel like the cough was taking over my life. Just had to remember to take my decongestant in the morning. The day my decongestants ran out was also the morning of my annual physical. I had been so in sync with taking the medication that I almost forgot there was a reason for it. I went to my primary care physician. My vitals looked good. I'd lost weight. I wasn't even trying. How great. Before our appointment is over, my physician asks me, Is there anything else you would like to discuss today? The decongestant in my mind. Yeah, I say. I explain my cough, how it had been for about a month. Not getting worse, but not getting better. My physician assures me. It could be anything. Why don't we do some blood tests and move forward from there? Blood tests? That can't be good. I believe she didn't want to scare me, but she didn't explain any further. A nurse comes in to draw my blood and tells me I can head to the front to check out. I go about my day, ignoring the pinch in my arm where the cotton ball is bandaged, trying to not focus on what could be. Days later, I receive a call from the primary care office. Elevated white cell count, additional tests, too early to tell, we'll have to monitor. My head is spinning. The woman on the phone is doing everything she can to not say the word everyone dreads hearing. Cancer. She explains the tests that will have to be done to rule out the possibility and what appointments I need to make. I need to see them stat next week. It's all too much for me to take in. I sit in my living room with the phone on speaker, confirming my appointment time. I walk to my fridge and open my champagne. Not the fanciest of bottles in the world, but it'll have to do. I don't even bother using a glass. I take a large swig from the mouth of the bottle, fall to my knees, and cry. My days follow as such, making appointments, waiting for the appointment, then waiting for the results. The process is painstakingly slow, each day an agonizing trial of waiting to see how it will come out on the other side. None of the physicians can agree. One will read the result and assure me I'm fine. My physician tells me there's still areas for concern. Another test, another needle jab. My spirit begins to die a little. The uncertainty of the situation, as well as the cost for these tests, are doing a number on my physical and mental well-being. I'm unable to focus on work, adding even more stress 
to the bills that had begun to pile up. Four months of tests and second opinions weigh on my mind as I sit on the crinkly paper in the exam room, my hand nervously fidgeting with the other as I await my physician's interest. I decided today was going to be the day I'm ending this. No more tests, no more needle sticks, no more waiting to find out if my life is going to be turned upside down. There's a soft knock on the door, and my physician opens it and glides in. Sam, I have someone here who would like to discuss something with you. Would you like to follow me to my office? My heart begins to beat wildly, a private discussion in her office. This is it. I stand up and follow her. This entire time, I have never been to her office. All conversations have transpired in exam rooms. We walk outside the clinic into the lobby of the medical building towards the elevator. Stepping on, we go to the third floor. The walk is quiet. We see no other people in the halls. We do not talk. The air is so thick, I can't breathe. I can hardly bear the silence, thinking of anything to say but only wanting to ask what is happening. I can be patient. I've been patient this whole time. She stops and opens a door at the end of the hall, sweeping her arm to the door to signal for me to enter. She enters after me, shutting the door. The lights are low, with lamps creating a soft atmosphere, a light scent of vanilla filling the air. There's a desk and to the side, a small sitting area with a couch, coffee table, and two armchairs, one of which is occupied by a very handsome man. He stands up to shake my hand. So wonderful to meet you, Sam. My name is James Baker. I take his hand and say hello, not sure what the point of this introduction is. Let's just get this over with. Please, have a seat. I've been speaking with your physician. She has told me you've been through a lot the last couple months. Let's see if I can do anything to help. He explains he works for a unique medical group that specializes in holistic treatment of all types of ailments, but specifically with individuals suffering from or believed to be suffering from different types of cancers. Only few and far people are offered this opportunity. They have had to have gone through all the tests. The uncertainty of a final result must be evident, but I meet the criteria. There's still a possibility for me to recover, be part of this trial. I look over the packet he hands me. It is plentiful, a weight in my hands indicating paperwork and legal contacts. James explains I have an option outside of traditional medicine, a trip to a resort in Arkansas where fresh air and relaxation will cure whatever ailment I have. As I pull out the paperwork, there's testimonials from other patients that have been miraculously cured after a respite at the resort. Tears well into my eyes as I ask the cost of such treatment. I have an extremely basic health insurance plan. There's no way I can afford something like this. James smiles at me as he grabs the packet with one hand 
and captures my hand with the other. He looks into my eyes, a smile plain at the corner of his mouth. You do not have to pay anything. The resort is a part of the treatment that we want to offer you, free of charge. We believe the money should not have to be a factor in recovery. In fact, we believe it hinders recovery. We have silent investors that have seen the miracles of our treatment and want to offer it to others. I ask, where do I sign? What else do I have to lose? That brings us to now. The beverage is cool. The bubbles make my mouth tingle. I stare into the glass, telling myself I'll have just the one, and then try to get comfortable in my room. The resort has suites large enough to be small apartments, and there's nothing I have to worry about while I'm here. No cooking or cleaning unless I want to. There are activities all around to enjoy, so I don't have to go to a gym. The scenery is stunning, with the red just starting to show around the property on the trees. It's still a little warm outside, but the feeling of cooler weather is in the air. More people have come into the dining room. What was muted conversations has been transformed into raging conversations. The clatter of silverware on plates, laughter, and the hustle and bustle of the kitchen create a chorus that I've missed. Before all the treatments and bills, I used to love going out to dinner or enjoy a drink. I feel a wave of contentment roll over me as I give my glass a small smile. Does the Prosecco tell jokes? I hear a masculine voice say. Startled, I look around and find James sitting at a bar seat next to me. I didn't even notice him sit down, let alone order his drink. I must have been completely zoned out. Only if you ask very nicely. Why did I say that? How are you enjoying everything so far? Have you had the chance to settle in? First stop was to my room to drop my bag off and then came straight here. We continue in polite conversation and James eventually excuses himself. I finish my drink and think that I better head back up to my room. I find the stairs and take them to the fourth floor, room 419. I take a moment to sit on the couch and really look at the room around me. The bathroom is immediately in front of me. It's small, but boasts large windows with an amazing view of the sunset. The living room has windows as well. A small door sits in one corner with a couch between it and the wall. To the right is a bedroom, a large queen bed with lush pillows. The framed painting of a woman rests on the wall, eyes fixed on the bed. I walk to the bed, sitting on it. The comfort and quiet of the room entice me to lay down. I think of my time here. I wonder how long I'll have to stay. Will I meet others that do suffer from cancer? What if I don't get better? The thoughts begin to swirl together. The glass of Prosecco lulling me into a delicious sleep I haven't had in so long. Some sort of disturbance wakes me up. Through my groggy brain, I struggle to register where I am. The room is pitch black. I feel around and remember I'm on a bed in my hotel room at the Crescent Hotel. As the relief of the realization breaks down my panic, 
I feel the pressure of the air change and the faintest click of a door. I jump to my feet and run to my door, ripping it open and looking down the hall to catch whoever was in my room. But the hall is vacant. There's not a soul. Surely I would have heard them run or the slam of the door as I made it back to their room. I shudder and close my door, enough light coming through the windows that I can find the lamp in the living room. I flick it on and it illuminates. Everything looks undisturbed, exactly as I left it when I came back from the bar, except for a single rose on the coffee table. Could it have been there? I don't remember it when I checked in, but I also wasn't really paying attention. I go back to the bedroom, locking the door and settling back onto the bed. I can't get settled though. As I look to the light illuminating from under the bedroom door, I stare at it on high alert, waiting for whatever was just in my room with me. Sleep does eventually come much to my protest. After fighting for who knows how long, my eyes finally shut and I restlessly slip back into dreamland. When I awake in the morning, I open my eyes, looking at the shut door. Everything looks so much better in the daylight. I laugh at myself and how scared I was the night before. There was no one in my room. I must have still have been dreaming when I thought I heard someone. The rose had to have been there during check-in. The pressure was just the air turning on or off. Nothing to spook myself over. I go downstairs to find breakfast and figure out just what I should do with my time here. I need to find a list of activities, maybe a good bookstore. I don't want to get too bored with all my newfound free time. I'm gone from the hotel for a couple of hours. The area around it is cute, and I can see myself spending a lot of time exploring it. But I do eventually find myself back at the hotel and starving. I have my dinner in the Crystal dining room and meander about the hotel. As I walk around, I'm greeted very warmly by all those who work there. No one's interested in conversation though. It's a bit lonely, but I don't mind. Again, I have to tell myself to relax. Enjoy this. That's the whole point. I eventually come to a door that says restricted access, but it's not fully shut. If I push on it just a little, it would open right up. I look around. There's no one in sight. I decide to take the risk. What the heck, right? Worst comes to worst, it's a kitchen or an office. The door creaks open as I push it and unveils a long, dark stairway leading down. I illuminate the light on my phone and shine the walls. There's no light switch. I take the first step down and the stair groans under my weight. I take another and another. I hear creaking behind me and see the door slowly closing. I watch as it reaches the frame too far away to beat it as it shuts. 
I'm now in complete darkness. A cool draft comes up the stairs the further I walk down. Eventually, I make it to the last step. All that's in front of me is a long hallway. No longer the smooth red walls of the hotel, but dirt carved out of the basement. In the distance of the hall, a purple glow illuminates through a door at the end. I slowly walk towards it. I have no idea what I'm doing. Every fiber of my being is telling me this is a bad idea. I approach the door. My hand is on the handle when I hear the sound of talking from somewhere behind me. I turn around knowing I must have been caught, but I'm the only person in the hallway. I shine my light and find that there's a vent in the ceiling. I turn my light off and study it in the darkness. It's hard to make out. However, I see the faintest of light coming through it, purple. I hold my breath as I listen. The voices sound too far away to be coming from the room at the end of the hall. Then the voices are no longer audible. There's nothing but still silence. I turn back towards the mysterious door. What exactly is this? Why the purple? I approach the door, my hand reaching out towards the handle again. This time I touch it, grasp it in my hand as I turn the knob. It opens easily and I'm engulfed in fluorescent light. It seems to be some type of sterile room. There's a wall on the other side covered in jars and vials, their contents glowing under the light. To the right, a desk, strewed with papers and folders, a human skull positioned nicely in the corner. On the left, a supply cart and a door, and positioned right in the middle, reflecting the light, creating an eerie glow that seems to be resonating from an unknown source, a metal gurney. The scene is something straight out of a horror novel the lair of some mad scientist, but in the basement of a hotel in the middle of the country, not some remote island, not in the middle of the woods, not anywhere anyone would expect. I'm taking all the details in, studying the jars on the shelves. Some seem to contain liquid, while other contain masses, animals, bugs, and unknown items. Bile comes at the back of my throat. What the hell? My thoughts are cut off when I hear the sound of voices again. Expect this time it's not faint or coming from above me. Someone is opening the door to the stairs. There were no other rooms in the hall. I have to find some place to hide. Given the environment, there's nowhere to really hide. I scan the room again, looking for anywhere I can position myself my eyes land on the random door. Of course! I cross the small room, open the door, get inside, and shut it, barely giving myself enough time before the voices grow louder, indicating the disembodied voices have entered the room. 
And how could you not know where she went? It was your only job to make sure we had eyes on her at all times. Huh? I'm sorry. A voice says in return. She went into town, I followed her back here, and then she was just gone. She's not in her room, I've checked. It doesn't look like she's been here for a while. Well, find her! We don't have all day. We have to get to the next batch ready to ship. We have no idea what her cells could do for us. We will be rich. I'm motionless as I listen to the conversation. The information is too coincidental for them to be talking about anyone else. But who? I likely would have noticed if someone was following me around town and back to the hotel. Wouldn't I? There's also a bothersome feeling while the men are speaking. One of them I can't place. However, there's something familiar of the other. The irritated man speaks again. Don't make me say this again. Find her, or it'll be you explaining where the cure went. You hear me, James? My breath catches in my throat. I have to hold my hand to my mouth to stifle my gasp. James? I think back to the night before, how I didn't notice him until he was sitting right next to me. How I felt as if someone was in my room last night. The rose that was left. What did it mean? The conversation does not continue. I hear the scrape of the door open and then shut. The soft sound of feet ascending the stairs, and then the final sound of another door shutting in the distance. I feel frozen as I stand with my hand still on my mouth. I have to manually force myself to inhale after it feels as though my lungs are on fire. I keep my hand on my mouth, scared that if I remove it, my breathing will be amplified enough for them to hear and come back. I continue to breathe, eventually feeling like I caught my breath, my mind still reeling. I pull my phone from my pocket and illuminate the light. After they left, I must have leaned against the wall. The door is to my left and the wall is in front of me. A bookshelf is to my right. I shine the light on it and see a small door nestled between it and the wall. The same looking small door as in my room. I crouch. This door has an old fashioned deadbolt, currently locked. I unlock it. Who knows what horrors I will find. If I'm going to die, might as well find out why. The door opens and it is pitch black. Even when I shine my light into the darkness, nothing is visible. I half crawl, half crouch through it. On the other side, I can fully stand. While a small door may have looked like a chute or a crawl space, it is expansive. I walk through the corridor, finding a set of stairs, similar as the ones I walked down from the lobby. I follow them up, too intrigued to care about what I'm doing. I see beams of light shining through the walls up ahead. Once I approach them, I can peer through and see the lobby of the hotel. It seems to be through boards of wood. I walk forward and see the end of the hallway is no longer a black void. 
but it comes to an additional set of stairs going up. I follow up and up. Each set of stairs comes to long hallways, each with small doors, spaced apart at random intervals, jutting in or out at odd angles. I make it to the top of the fourth set of stairs. My heart is hammering as I walk down the hallway. I find my first small door. I shine my light further down the hall and see it ends with no other door. The only one. My light lands on it. It's the same color blue as the one in my room. A handle with a lock. With a trembling hand, I turn the lock and the door pulls towards me. I'm hit with fresh air, light coming in. I'm viewing my room. I see my bag sitting on the floor, my jacket on the couch. My room. I crawl across the threshold of the small door, standing in the living room, staring at the black void of the open crawl space. I realize with horror, there's no way to close or secure the door shut from this side. There's no handle. I can't barricade the door as it opens the wrong way. Screw this. I turn my back to the crawl space and head to the bedroom. I'm packing my stuff and getting out of here. I didn't really unpack the night before, so my items are minimal. I pack the clothes I brought out and then exit the bedroom towards the bathroom. I'm grabbing my items from the shower when a low creak comes from the living room. I freeze, listening intently. The air in the bathroom changes. I notice a presence standing behind me. I'm still paralyzed. My heart's beating so loud in my ears, I'm unable to concentrate on the noises around me. Suddenly, the silence is broken. Well, Sam, guess you found my little secret. James says from behind me. I didn't want it to be this way. I feel an arm grab me and another pushing a cloth into my face. I try to fight back, jab him in the ribs, step on his toes, even try to slam my head against his. But as the seconds tick by, each move seems less and less in my control. The darkness seeps in as my arms fall limp. Just before I lose all my consciousness, I hear James whisper in my ear. Don't be mad, Sam. You're going to save so many people. Hey guys, it's Holly and Brittany, two sisters who take a deep dive into the history of the world's most haunted places and paranormal happenings. This is Sisterstitious, and it's about to get spooky. Now, since every good ghost story starts at the beginning, that is where we are going to begin. 
During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Eureka Springs healing waters were known for curing almost every ailment known to man. These included diabetes, rheumatism, women's health issues, paralysis, and many more. Founded in 1879, the city was named after the medicinal springs that existed in the area. The waters were bottled and sold as early as the 1850s. But the Osage Nation had first discovered and used the springs centuries before they were pushed out by white settlers. By the early 1880s, the town grew rapidly and eventually became a premier Victorian resort town. The natural elements that have shaped Eureka Springs history are evident in the architecture and landscape of the city. Some of the oldest buildings still stand, including churches and schools. The town is still home to a number of historic buildings, and many of these buildings are on the National Register of Historic Places. One of these is known to be one of the most haunted hotels in America. The Crescent Hotel was erected in 1886 to be one of the premier resort hotels west of the Mississippi. Built in hopes that it would bring more traffic to the local railroad and city of Eureka Springs, sponsors of the Eureka Springs Railroad, Clayton Powell and Richard Kearns, poured hundreds of thousands of dollars into the creation of the hotel. Designed by the well-known architect Isaac Taylor, the hotel was built into limestone, high atop a cliff that overlooks the city. Built by Irish immigrants, brought over for the sole purpose of constructing the Richardson Romanesque Revival-style lodge, it was not only an impressive structure, it also included modern luxuries of the time, including electric bells, Edison lighting, a hydraulic lift, and steam heating. On May 20th, 1886, the hotel officially opened with a gala to celebrate in the Crystal Ballroom, which is still in the hotel today. While the hotel was initially successful, funding slowly started to dwindle. Unable to continue operating as a hotel, it was converted into the Crescent College and Conservatory in 1908. The college was a Catholic school for girls from wealthy households. The college had both local and out-of-state students. Out-of-state students lived on campus while local students were referred to as day students. The college operated from 1908 to 1923, then closed for a few years before reopening as a junior college in the late 1920s, only to close a few years later owing to the Depression. The building sat empty for years until Norman Baker, a self-proclaimed medical healer and quack, bought the Crescent to use as a cancer clinic. The youngest of 10 children, Baker was born on November 27, 1882 in Muscatine, Iowa. When he was 16 years old, he dropped out of high school to work as a machinist, but became fascinated with magic after witnessing a performance one evening. In 1904, he started his own vaudeville production showcasing Madame Pearl Tangley, the mental marvel who could read minds. The show became highly successful in small towns and eventually landed a contract with the Marcus Lowe Theater in New York. After that, its popularity reached new heights. Over the years, Madame Pearl Tangley underwent several replacements. One of the women who replaced her eventually married Norman Baker. After roughly 10 years, Baker made the decision to leave the entertainment industry to begin working again as a machinist. It was during this time that he created the Colophone, a new type of organ which made Baker millions. Following the Kylophone's commercial success, Baker looked into other potential business ventures to make even more money. 
He started a mail order company, and after seeing how much business radio advertising brought in, he again reversed course and started his own radio station. Because metropolitan radio stations did not emphasize appealing to rural citizens and their everyday lives, Baker aspired to do just that. He would call his station KTNT, which stood for Know the Naked Truth. The station was built on a hill and included a gift shop, restaurant, and even a gas station with the lowest prices in the area. Having immediate success, he was able to increase the audience of his broadcast to 1 million. Because of his charisma as a performer and his background in rural America, he built a strong rapport with his audience. Using his platform, he spread many of his conspiracies about the toxicity of modern medicine and the evils of politics and big businesses. He pushed anti-vax, anti-Semitic, and anti-Catholic messages. He also influenced many Midwesterners to support Hoover as president. After Hoover won the presidency, he brought Baker to the White House for a private meeting Although, by this time, his propaganda had already begun to draw criticism. Hoover also assisted Baker in starting his newspaper, the Midwest Free Press. This ultimately strengthened the connection between Baker and his listeners even further. Because they loved his broadcast so much, crowds of five to 10,000 people would picnic on the KTNT grounds each weekend. In the 1920s, his radio station would rise to prominence in the Midwest. However, popularity would inevitably bring the most criticism to Baker and his messaging. His broadcast started to sound more combative, and some listeners found his positions objectionable. Baker enjoyed attacking anyone who called out or disagreed with his views. One example was when he referred to the State University of Iowa's hospital as a slaughterhouse. Baker attacked also sparked the Cedar County Cow War. During an outbreak of bovine tuberculosis, mandatory testing for TB on cattle was conducted by veterinarians. Baker claimed that this was all just a ploy for vets to steal and sell perfectly healthy cattle. Because of these blatant lies, Farmers took violent measures to have all the veterinarians removed from their farms. It wouldn't be until the state militia showed up that things would calm down and the war would end. It wouldn't be until he started boasting that he had discovered a cure for cancer, that criticism against him would reach unprecedented heights. The American Medical Association heard about these claims and pushed for the FTC to investigate Baker. In 1931, the FTC denied Baker a license renewal on the grounds of vulgarity, immorality, and indecency. He would lose his radio station's contract and be removed from the air. After getting involved with Dr. Ozias, who started his own cancer clinic in Kansas City, both Baker and Ozias decided together to try out their miraculous cure. This cure was simply a tincture containing corn silk, clover, ground watermelon seeds, and water. They injected this cocktail into five cancer patients, and instead of telling the public the truth, that they died, they lied and told of their miraculous recovery. Soon, Baker decided to start showing public demonstrations of his cures, which went as far as opening up a man's skull in front of a crowd of people to administer his injection. Without the help of radio advertising, 
Baker created his own magazine called TNT to keep up with his following. He used TNT to spread the word about his new hospital in Muscatine, Iowa called the Baker Institute. Here, he claimed, is where you could go to be treated for cancer that did not require surgery, radium, or x-rays. With such a continued wide following, his hospital grew to be so popular, it overflowed with citizens seeking treatment. In order to be admitted, evaluations were given for $10 apiece, a hefty price for low-wage workers at the time. These evaluations almost always ended up giving a worst-case diagnosis. With treatments costing up to $1,000 each, many of Baker's patients ended up spending their life savings at his clinic and were never cured. He employed medical doctors but dissuaded them from using their medical expertise by directing them on how to administer his therapies. He even ordered the physicians to administer castor oil to patients, combine powdered and liquid formulations, and attempted to sell the pharmacy stock to patients. He also instructed physicians to use trial and error to test new treatments on patients for various diseases. If a patient was discharged, they were expected to purchase home treatments from the hospital, which generated even more income for Baker. It was estimated that Baker's institution generated almost $75,000 a month. The AMA started getting mail from health professionals cautioning them about Baker's institution. The AMA started publishing articles about the Baker institution, but Baker continued to brand them as liars and claimed that they would do whatever it took to shut him down. Baker opposed the AMA, stating that modern medicine was just concerned with making money off of its patients and that their health was not a priority. In addition, he asserted that his institution had made more development than the entire Iowa State University. After Baker tried suing the AMA for attacks of his claims, he was charged with practicing medicine without a license, and he fled to Mexico, attempting to establish a new radio station. It is here that he decided he would try dabbling in politics by unsuccessfully running for governor and state senator. Thank God. After coming back to the United States to serve an outstanding warrant, he relocated to Eureka Springs, Arkansas, when realizing that health officials in Iowa would not take him seriously. Once there, he decided to open up a second cancer clinic and spread the word by mailing out tens of thousands of pamphlets claiming that it would be a cancer sufferer's paradise. Surprisingly, he still had a very large and supportive following. In 1937, he purchased a Crescent after it sat for years in disrepair and spent nearly $50,000 on renovations, which included painting the inside a shade of lavender, his staple color. Once completed, he relocated his staff and patients from his cancer institute in Muscatine, Iowa to Eureka Springs. Locals arrived at his hospital in search of a cure as soon as word spread. In addition to cancer, Baker asserted that he could also cure a number of other ailments. After being admitted, his patients all received the same watermelon seed injections numerous times daily, regardless of their illnesses. Local rumors arose after it was discovered that patients were passing away at his facility. In addition, many of those who were deemed cured would often leave the facility in worse condition when they arrived and would pass away soon after. 
Rumors started to spread about what was really happening within the walls of the Baker's Hospital. Some claimed that he sent several of his victims to the basement, where his morgue was housed, and experimented on them there. It was also rumored that he would transfer patients who weren't getting better to a soundproofed, always locked, psychiatric section where they were never to be seen again. Overall, 44 patients died during the running of Baker's Cancer Institute. Eventually, Baker was taken into custody for mail fraud in September 1939. During postal investigations, it was discovered that he had conned roughly $4 million out of his victims, which is equivalent to about $80 million today. Baker was given a three-year prison term in order to pay a $4,000 fine. After being freed, he returned to Muscatine and made another attempt to establish a research center. Thankfully, the community rejected his proposition. He eventually relocated to Florida to live on his yacht and passed away in 1958 from liver cancer. It seems that the tables had fittingly turned. After Baker's arrest, the Crescent was sold and repurchased over many decades to be used for its original purpose, a hotel. During this time, it experienced both success and losses. But even through it all, the hotel's resident marmalade tabby cat named Morris kept things interesting for nearly 20 years. Morris came to live at the hotel after befriending many residents in the area. After the manager of the hotel was convinced by his wife to let Morris stay in the hotel, he became very popular with visitors and guests. When he died in 1994, over 300 people came to pay their respects and witnessed his burial in the hotel gardens. Before his passing, Morris chose his successor to the hotel, a Siamese mix named Tittles, who continued living there even after the new owners, Marty and Elise Roenick, purchased the hotel in 1997. They desired to bring the hotel back to its former gilded glory. After massive renovations, including building the New Moon Spa and Salon, they reopened with the name 1886 Crescent Hotel and Spa. Unfortunately, after about a decade of owning the Crescent, tragedy would strike the Roanoke's. On June 18, 2009, Marty was killed in a car accident on his way to purchase merchandise for one of their many properties in the area. After hearing the news, over 500 people attended his celebration of life, which was held a month after his passing. His wife, Elise, still owns the hotel today. While some visitors come to the hotel for its antiquity, charm, and cats, most visit to capture or witness the paranormal. Not only was the hotel built with limestone, Crescent Hill, the hilltop that the building sits on, is made up predominantly of limestone too. Paranormal investigators have found that limestone has the ability to absorb and release electromagnetic energy, which could be why the Crescent has named itself one of the most haunted buildings in the country. Tales of its hauntings began long before the Roanoke's took ownership, but there are a few legendary ghosts that have made themselves known so frequently that names and portraits of them hang in the rooms that they are affiliated with. One of the most famous of the ghosts is Michael. One of the original Irish stonemasons fell to his death when constructing the hotel. It is believed that he fell through what is now room 218, since he is seen frequently there. Guests who stay in Michael's room have reported unusual activity, including lights and the TV being turned on and off, 
water running, and the doors opening and closing on their own. Michael seems to be most active when women stay in his room. Another of the legendary ghosts is known as the Lady in White. A 1930s-style nurse has been seen on the third floor pushing a squeaking gurney and suddenly disappearing into thin air. Those who have seen her think she was a nurse or baker and is possibly pushing a deceased patient to the morgue. During the period of time the Crescent was a girls' school, one of the students jumped from the third floor balcony to her death. It was discovered that she was pregnant and believed that her actions were persuaded by shame. A light mist that forms from the third floor balcony has been seen slowly falling and landing where the girl's body was discovered. Another haunted room is 419 and is believed to be the room of a woman named Theodora who lived during Baker's cancer clinic days. It is unknown if she was a patient or a worker, but we know she enjoys a tidy room. If you are a messy guest, she will clean up after you and even pack your bags. She has been seen as a full-bodied apparition. A few more ghosts seen frequently through the hotel are Brecky, a four-year-old who died in the hotel due to appendicitis, has been seen bouncing a ball. In room 212, Dr. John Ellis, one of the hotel's in-house doctors, has frightened guests by appearing near his old office. Whiffs of his pipe tobacco can even sometimes be smelled while staying in the room. And of course, we cannot forget Morris, the famous Crescent Cat and general hotel manager. He has been seen from time to time wandering the grounds of the hotel and seen sitting near his picture and poem that was dedicated to him after his passing. The poem reads, In memory of Morris, the resident cat at the Crescent Hotel, he filled his position exceedingly well. The general manager title he wore was printed right there on his own office door. He acted as greeter and sometimes as guide. Whatever his duties, he did them with pride. He chose his own hours and set his own pace. The guests were impressed with his manners and grace. Upstairs and down, he kept everything nice. They might have had ghosts, but they never had mice. I don't know why that's so hard for me to read without me almost crying. Um, I just love cats, guys, so that's why. But it seems that Morris loved his time at the hotel so much that he still decides to visit sometimes. Now, we're going to move down to the morgue, which was used by Norman Baker while running his cancer institute and has always been an area where activity has been noticed. But ever since 2019, after archaeologists dug up and found jars containing removed parts of human organs and hundreds of vials containing Baker's secret cancer formula, the activity has seemed to really ramp up. Visitors have seen a dark figure lurking in the morgue, and sometimes they have even felt that they were being touched by this figure. Cold spots are frequently felt during the tours in the morgue. Luckily, the Crescent decided to keep some of Baker's bottles, which can be seen on display in the hotel. On the third floor, near the hotel's connection to an annex that was added while it was a hospital, a common occurrence unfolds. Supposedly, the location serves as a portal to the other side. At the same point during a nightly ghost tour, visitors have started to feel dizzy and some have even briefly passed out without any apparent cause. 
The visitors, who pass out immediately, go pale, falling against the wall before fainting and sliding down it. This all happens the same way. While they always make a full recovery quickly, these experiences seem to come in bursts, with many taking place over a period of months and then suddenly stopping, only to start back at random. The 1886 Crescent Hotel and Spa runs ghost tours nightly, and eyewitness accounts can be viewed on their official website. They also host a paranormal weekend each year where paranormal investigators flock to the hotel to see what evidence they can capture. In 2021, an amateur investigator caught a full-bodied apparition on camera in the Crystal Dining Room, which can also be viewed on their website. If you're interested in visiting to see the history, pet the resident cats, which, I mean, I would be doing, or hope to have your own personal paranormal experience, you can visit americasmosthauntedhotel.com. Hey guys, um, Holly and Brittany here. We're back and we definitely missed you. Hey guys, so happy to be back. So we've decided that instead of calling you all you lovely people, guys, we're going to start calling you booze. So, hey, booze. What's up, boo? You get it? Boo, like spooky boo, but y'all are our booze, too. (laughs) I love it. All right. Well, cool. If you don't like it, I'm sorry, but that's what we're going to be doing. You're now officially a boo. A boo. Yes. So, what an interesting hotel to research and start back with you guys. Um, One of the reasons why I really wanted to do this hotel was because um, the cast Two Girls, One Ghost, um, which they may have covered the Crescent. I'm not sure, but I do follow them on Instagram and they posted a video. It was a TikTok and I don't, I can't find it now for some reason, but it was a video that one of the workers had from one of the people that stayed in the hotel and she was just recording in her room. And you could like, there was a glimpse of like a child running past the screen. It was like super, super creepy and unbelievable, honestly, that this was captured on film. Um, I'm not sure why they took it down, but I'm going to imagine that it was real just because of all of the different evidence we can see in pictures and videos that people have taken previously. This place really, really does seem haunted, honestly. Yeah, it seems like anywhere you go in the hotel, there's going to be some ghost. And you never know which ghost it's going to be. Yeah. Um, I definitely wouldn't mind um, seeing the ghost of Morris because why not? Little kitty cat. Be so cute. So I actually watched a video on YouTube of other people going to visit the hotel and they were influencers. And I think they have a new cat manager. He looks like little or she looks like little tuxedo cat. Very cute. But just hangs out in the lobby, sleeps in the chairs. Oh, yeah. They have I think they have two. They like or will constantly have cats, which is another good reason why, if you like cats, another good reason to visit. Oh, I would bother those cats so hard. I'd be like, you're coming to sleep in my room with me. 
I'm sure they get bothered a lot. They probably know how to lead the situation when they are not wanting to be there anymore. So back to the ghosts and documenting the ghosts. Um, There is a Facebook page called the Crescent Hotel Ghost Tours where you can see just tons of photographs of different ghosts or different things that look like ghosts, apparitions, spirits, figures. Um, It's definitely super creepy. I know that before when we talked about Myrtle's plantation, I hadn't seen so many photographs before. Like this definitely beats that. So I don't know. Like honestly, these photographs, this is like one of those places where I'm like, nope, yep. I think it really might be haunted. I do. I really do. Well, the person whose video I watched, um, and I really can't remember their name, they said, you know, (laughs) you always want it to happen to you until you go somewhere and it's happening to you. Oh, no. So so, um, I just thought that was kind of funny to think about because I guess this is one of those places where it doesn't matter what room you stay in you're going to have some type of interaction with a ghost. Yeah, and it sounds like they have, like, multiple rooms that have activity in them. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not just, like, one room or, like, two rooms. You know, there are multiple rooms, and there are specific ghosts that are tied to those rooms. But I think what makes this hotel the creepiest is Norman Baker's whole situation and the fact that they found those bottles and vials they were actually trying to dig up to expand their parking lot when one of the workers actually found a bottle or vial that looks exactly like the bottles and vials that he used to promote his clinic so that's when they were like hmm Mm. so they like froze and they didn't do anything else and then they had archaeologists come to dig it up and like in them you could see like human specimen you could see like tumors and then you had so many of his vials with his super stupid um cure you know that his magic elixir yeah that he just used in killed so many people yeah he's basically a serial killer if you guys uh didn't get that from what we were saying killed so many people it's just astounding and you and you and you would think like how are these people so stupid but you know they were just hearing what they were told they didn't have internet back then but you know some people at least were able to notice his quackery so that's good ultimately he was called out and went to jail and hopefully never killed anybody ever again i don't know about that con men's gonna con yeah he was a big con man he was like anything that i can do to make more money i mean he did he was just fine with lying just fine with it awful person but yeah i mean that was definitely one of the most interesting things um and Like I said in the episode, you can see the vials. So when they came in to redo the hotel, none of his, like, they had cleared everything out. And they were told that they had cleared all of his belongings and, like, thrown them in a dump. They had no idea that the dump was actually on site in the hotel, which is incredible, honestly. I mean, I I definitely would want to go to see those things. So yeah, they're they're um, on display in the morgue if you ever want to go to the Crescent Hotel to see them. Well, I think some of them are also still on display in the little shelter they created at the actual 
dig site where they found all of them. Okay. Well, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, yeah, they're there. If you want to go see them, they were, so they were all, from what I saw from the pictures, they were all buried like together. Yeah. 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 They were just like in a pile. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. His uh, lovely photograph is hanging in the morgue too. So wasn't a bad looking dude, I guess. I guess I imagined him creepier, but I'm not going to say anything else positive about him because he's a monster. True. A monster. Well, you know, not that I condone what he was doing, but it is very interesting the amount of followers that he got for people. They would go to his cancer center and people, you know, it was just so crazy that it took mail fraud to find out that he was doing something malicious. And then, you know, the amount of people that died on the property and then the the people who'd never got the treatment that they needed and died later. It's just, I hope they all haunt him. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm sure he's not in a very good place right now in the afterlife. So, but I am surprised that there, I mean, who knows? There could be some of that activity could be from some of the cancer patients. But once again, because they had to suffer like that, like I would really hope that they're not trapped there. They're not stuck there remembering how awful their time was. Um, But also, Investigators have come in and they like haven't deemed any of the ghosts evil either. So they think that Norman Baker might be in the morgue because of his shadow figure. But I mean, I guess he's not like hurting anybody. Maybe it's just like remnants of his soul just coming back because of the limestone (laughs) replaying him working in the morgue. Let's just hope that's all it is. I hate that. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. And then, you know, once again, limestone, it's just covered in limestone, built inside limestone. I mean, I think like that was one of the first things I read about this hotel. And I was like, of course. Yeah. Because why wouldn't it be? Right. Of course. I mean, I think, I think we've, I think we've got something going here, you know? I mean, not us, but like the whole paranormal world. Yeah. The paranormal community as a whole. Yes. Something, something's going on with this. So I think we need uh, more research. We need more to discover what is going on because I really want to know. I'm very interested. Maybe I can make that. Huh? I said we need to get some like lime necklaces or something to wear around us. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I want that. I, yeah, I'm, maybe that's what'll make my life's work. I'll just uh, start setting limes down. I'm getting more into this now, you know, I'm not as scared. I think I would go on a paranormal investigation now, the more I I thought about it. Okay. Yeah. I feel like I always say no, but I feel like I would do it at the Crescent Hotel. I think like that would be good. Yeah. And I feel like so many people go, so you wouldn't be alone. Apparently Paranormal investigators just flock there. Similar stories like everywhere else, but why not? If that's what you are into, like that's definitely a place I would be going to. And uh, for their paranormal weekend where they have tons that come. That seems so ridiculous. Um, I mean, it obviously does well. Lots of people come. And I really like hadn't like done a whole lot of research about Eureka Springs because I don't want to say why would I have, uh, because, you know, that could offend some people who like Eureka Springs or live there. But um, I think there's a lot of places in the U.S. I uh, a lot of people haven't uh, read up on, but it's, it seems amazing, honestly. So 
Once again, another place to check off my list. We we need to go on the ultimate spooky road trip. We do, I know. One day when my babies are older. We can bring them. Oh, no. Oh, no. They would see stuff. They're little. It would be too freaky. I feel like Della would ask them for a snack. Lola would just start talking to them. Yeah. It would be terrifying. But, yes, we are so excited for spooky season to commence. I mean, I feel like it already has... September is the new October. So, I mean, you can't just have one month celebrating Halloween. Who likes that? We got to make it two or more. Some people celebrate it all year and uh, good for you if you do. But we're excited to get back into this, start recording for you guys. Yes, just had a lot of personal things going on. And like we said in our post, we never meant for this to this break to take as long as it did. It was not intentional. It just seemed like life was just continuously, like things were just piling up and piling up. And I'm not going to go into detail if you're personal friends with us and you know everything that's going on. Um, But luckily, one of the biggest things has been taken care of. I'm okay. And that's all that we can ask for. So if you are sending out good vibes, if you're praying, whatever you are doing, just want to thank you for well wishes and all of that um, because they were received. Yeah. It was a tough time, but we're happy to be back. And, you know, if anyone was wondering, I'm still cursed. So, yeah, you never got to talk about that. Um, maybe we'll talk about that in the next episode. Um, you can talk all about how you were cursed because you really were. Oh my gosh, I forgot. I thought I might have been cursed too, which I might almost be. So, I don't know. I know a lot of you don't follow my personal account, which is fine, but um, I did find the same exact photograph of the portrait of the senator's daughter that was at the Driscoll at an antique shop. And of course I bought it. And it seemed like the second I brought it home, just life blew up. And I was like, all right, if this keeps going bad, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with her. Cause you know, just throwing her in the trash isn't going to work. Right. Yeah. No, she'll just show up right back on the wall. Yeah. I feel like it would be one of those things where I'd have to like go take it back where I found it. And someone else would have to pick it up and take it home before I would stop being cursed. So hopefully that little girl in that picture is leaving me alone. You need to give her candy. Maybe, maybe. You know what? There is a little hole behind the picture, too. Holy. I know, because it used to be, and this is super embarrassing, but it used to be the um, towel holder that was there. And my husband, bless his heart, is not a handyman. <laughs> so when he was trying to hang it up or move it, like he put a whole, like, huge hole in the wall. And we just decided that we were just going to hang the picture over it for now. So there is a hole in the wall. So maybe I will put some candy in it. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yep. That is my life. (laughs) Yep. We have Let us know what candy you put in it. I will. I will. I wonder. It has to be good candy. Yeah. Or some, like, old-timey candy. Boston baked beans. That's not candy. Is it? Yeah. Oh, I don't, I'm not into candy. So <laughs> that, uh, I probably sound stupid. No, I have no idea. Like, well, it's an original. That's like an old time candy. Sweetwater taffy. Sometimes with my ADHD, I have a really hard time with recall. So are you looking it up? 
Yeah, it's from the early 1930s. Okay, well, maybe that's what I'll try to find it somewhere. Stash it. Maybe it's yeah. that Crackle Barrel. It probably is. They're pretty good. Probably. You should try it. <laughs> oh, are they? I feel like I, I feel like I know what they are now. I just had it's to think in, like, about it. The red box, and it yes. literally looks like baked beans. Yes. God, such a weird candy. Oh man, people were super creative back then. So that's just weird. But you that's know what? what? You should give her. Yep. I'm going to go to Crackle Barrel tomorrow, and I will keep you guys posted. If the candy disappears, I don't know what I'm going to do. It was Michael. Probably. That's what I'm going to tell myself. <laughs> okay, guys. Well, we hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, we will see you guys back soon, and we will catch you later, booze. Catch you later, boo. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Right, bye, booze. This episode was produced, written, and edited by Holly Daniel and Brittany Murray. Cover art by Ben May. We want to thank you for listening to this production of Sister Stitious. This is Sister. It's a Halloween.